It was two weeks ago today, that great shift in the Earth's crust off the coast of Sumatra, creating a series of tsunami waves that pummeled coastlines in South Asia, Southeast Asia, all the way 3,000 miles from the epicenter in Africa, Somalia in particular. Pictures of the physical destruction of this this event are really mind-boggling, aren't they? Hard to imagine. But pictures of the human suffering are heart-wrenching. If you have any feeling toward people, they're hard to see. A woman on the beach, on her knees, with her face raised to the sky, weeping, her house and all of her family swept out to sea. A mother weeping as she holds her three-year-old son in her arms, his lifeless body washed ashore by the sea that claimed him. Etched in my mind is that picture of that European vacationer holding aloft a sign, giving the details about his six-month-old daughter. He was frolicking in the ocean with her one moment, and without warning, she was ripped from his arms and devoured by the raging sea. Masses of humanity enter eternity every day. But there's something about tragic events, extraordinary tragedies that grip our attention. They force us to face our mortality. When you see people going about their daily lives devoured by the jaws of death, we realize that could have been me. And such thoughts lead many of us to ask, why them? Why there? Why now? Was it bad luck? Was it bad karma? Were the gods angry, many are asking today? Was God angry? And I think a related question that we may not articulate, certainly in this culture it would be less than correct politically, but I think it echoes through our minds from time to time. Did they have it coming? Was this divine judgment? Why them? Why there? Why now? I wonder what would what Jesus would say in response. If he spoke, given this news of this event, what would he say? How would he look at it? How would he filter it? Well, I think certainly Jesus might offer words of comfort and hope to those who suffer. He who endured immeasurable suffering and who offers eternal salvation and hope to the needy. There's no doubt a great word that he would offer there to those who grieve. But I think there's another angle from which Jesus would see this event. Another word of wisdom that he would offer. A word, in fact, that we find recorded in Luke chapter 13. And I invite you in your Bibles, if you have one there, with you, Luke chapter 13. We've come to this place 
in our study through the book of Luke, to Luke chapter 13. And before reading through that, if you can wait for just a moment, let me trace out again the larger context of the book of Luke to this point in time. Jesus has completed what is known as His Galilean tour of ministry. He has spent over two years showing people who He is, that He is sent from God, that He is Messiah. They have seen His wonders and His signs that He has performed, the proof that He is God in flesh. But there has been a very strange response in Israel. By this time, the jealousy of the leaders has taken root, and they despise Jesus and want to stop him. Now, the the masses are excited with all of these things. You find somebody who can produce food, and you find somebody who can heal the sick, and you find somebody every once in a while who's not afraid to say something against the hypocritical Pharisees, and people are thrilled with the ministry of Jesus. They're thrilled to watch. But those who join to follow Jesus are very few. That's hard for the disciples even to see at this point. The masses crowd around him. He has to teach in a boat in the sea so that the crowd doesn't crush him. Everywhere he goes, the people are descending upon Jesus and the disciples. But Jesus knows there's not many that are really following. Not many that are repenting and following the message of John the Baptist that Jesus is now preaching. And so, as we come to chapter 12 in this book, we enter into a lengthy discourse, a teaching of Jesus from chapter 12 and verse 1. And it's out of this context of being impressed with Jesus, but not following Christ, that leads to this discussion on Christ's part. And this is a pointed teaching. This whole section, there are high levels of warning of divine judgment here. Just a fair reading of the text will bring this out quite quickly. You might turn back to 12 and verse 4, where he says, I tell you, friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Luke 12, 5, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Verse 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Verse 31, seek God's kingdom. Verse 37, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. But, verse 45, suppose a servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Verse 54, Jesus begins to bring this and does bring this down now to address the crowds. And he says, when you see a cloud rising in the west immediately, you say it's going to rain and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it is going to be hot and it is hypocrites. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? It is in the context of this discourse, a tough discourse, a pointed warning discourse, that some people come along and share extraordinary news with Jesus of an extraordinary tragedy. We find it recounted here, reported in verse 1 of Luke chapter 13. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. We have no historical information concerning this tragedy, but we do know that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, had a well-oiled reputation for enforcing Roman law with ruthless zeal. This is really not shocking at all. Apparently there are some Galileans who travel from the northern district of Galilee and come down to Judea, to Jerusalem, to offer sacrifices. The only time when, a, when the laity would be involved in the offering of sacrifices was during the festival of Passover. There was, in the time of Jesus, a rail that was there, and they would hand their sacrificial animal over, and they would participate in the cutting of its throat as the priests aided them in this great sacrifice. And it, is, it may well be at that very moment that soldiers, Roman soldiers, come up behind these who are sacrificing and cut them down in cold blood so that their blood mixes in with the blood of their sacrifices. What a horrible event. How does Jesus see this tragedy? I'll tell you, your anger could rise against Rome. Your anger could rise against Pontius Pilate. But in Jesus' response, we see him steer away from that at this time and to focus in a different direction. When he answers in verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. What is Jesus saying? This is theological reflection. And I believe that he is speaking the biblical truth that the wages of sin is death. That's how he looks at it here. Death is not extraordinary. In Adam, all die. The issue is not when or where or how you die. The issue is whether you escape the judgment of death by repentance. More on that later, but at this point, Jesus offers his own tragedy report as he illustrates the very same point, steering away from the possibility that one could think, well, this is Pilate in his sin. But then Jesus turns to a, what we might call a natural disaster, at least not something that someone committed as an atrocity, and that's at verse 4. He brings in his own illustration here where he says, Or those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them. 
Again, we have no historical record of this happening, but we do know that this was a stone tower on the southeast corner of Jerusalem. Tragically, there's some structural failure of some sort, and 18 people die in this tragedy. Middle of verse 4, Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Were they unlucky? No. Were they uniquely sinful? No. I'll tell you, many Jewish theologians of Jesus' day would have cringed to hear that run-of-the-mill sinners could die tragically. Surely these 18 were unique sinners, marked out for special judgment. This doesn't happen to good people. They die of old age, gently and sweetly, They rest in the arms of God as He calls them home in whispers. Not at all, says Jesus. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Let's think on this for a moment. Does God ever take the life of someone in a direct act of judgment? Does He ever do that? He does. And if you're not sure about that, Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 23 would be a good thing to look at this afternoon. You remember Herod speaking there, and God strikes him dead because of his pride. God does judge people with death. That's not what Jesus is saying. We could say, perhaps, that maybe one of those in the tower of Siloam or others may have been, in fact, judged by God. That's not out of the question. Some of those who have died in this, these tsunami waves, over 156,000 now, I think we might be able to think perhaps there were some who were being uniquely, directly, at that moment, judged by God for their sin. But Jesus steers us away from that. That's the point. Not saying that that's impossible, but saying that that's not how we need to look at this. Let me ask a second question. Is Jesus saying that if we repent of our sin, we will not die? Could be taken that way, couldn't it? Unless you repent, you too will all perish. So if you repent, you will not perish. Well, that's obviously not what he's saying. In a sense, it's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying physically. In Adam all die, we will die. That's not what he means, so he must mean something else. Unless you repent, you will perish also. Means that there's something in repentance that makes it possible for us not to perish. What does he mean? This is what the New Testament refers to later as the second death or eternal separation from God. Death is always judgment. Unless you repent, your death will be a judgment from God. For the unbeliever, death is a separation from God for eternity. He perishes. For the believer, physical death is the gateway to an eternity in the presence of the Lord. The the believer does not perish in that sense. So Jesus does not linger here 
to detail all of the theological nuances that are before us, but I think that's how we need to understand him. He does say that we will not perish if we repent. And so this death must be referring to some spiritual separation from God. It is obviously a call to repentance. Now let's think for just a moment on that word and that point. What does it mean to repent? Sometimes there's some foggy notions in our minds as to what repentance truly is. My own definition of it might be something like this. To repent is to change your mind about God so that you turn from your sin and pursue righteousness in fellowship with Him. To change your mind about God so that you turn from your sin and pursue righteousness and fellowship with Him. This is what John the Baptist, this is how John the Baptist put it in chapter 3. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So repentance is something that leads to the production of righteous fruit. Repentance, let me say, is not self-reformation as a prerequisite to saving faith. Repentance is not quitting every sinful habit in order to make yourself worthy of God's love. That is not repentance. Repentance is not praying a prayer on the other end of the scale. Praying a prayer to receive Jesus as your Savior and then living like the devil. That's not repentance either. Repentance is a change of mind that leads you to turn from your sin and pursue righteousness and fellowship with God. If we take all of the references to repentance in the Bible and put them together, we see those themes running throughout. We might illustrate repentance more in this way. You are caught in quicksand. We've probably all seen it somewhere on a movie. I don't think anybody ever sees quicksand, at least not anybody living around here, but you've probably seen it somewhere. That horrible idea of sinking down slowly, being gulped in by the earth. You're sinking in quicksand. There's no hope of rescue. And Jesus comes up to the edge of the pit and he holds out his hand and says, take my hand. And you grasp his hand. As you turn from this pit and grab his hand, he pulls you out and saves you. That is, a, I think, a fair picture of what repentance is. Is repentance getting all cleaned up? Getting all fixed up so that God can now pull me out of the pit? Clearly not. That is not what repentance is at all. Is repentance simply saying, yes, I acknowledge that you're there and that you're the Savior? It's not that either. It is a leaving behind of what is killing you and a grasping of the hand of salvation, receiving that pull and being put on the path of righteousness. That is repentance. The wages of sin is death, says Jesus. We will all die. It matters little how or when. What matters is that you enter eternity having repented of the sins that lead to death. If you do not repent, you will die in the quicksand. You've seen these who have gone down in this tragic way. You will go down the same way unless you repent and receive the hand of Christ 
for salvation. The context here is Israel's failure to repent, and I think that there is a personal, individual application. But let's remember in context, Jesus is dealing with the rejection of Israel here. And that then makes sense of this parable which he now presents to his listeners to illustrate this call to repentance. He says in verse 6, teaches them this parable, tells them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? The owner's fig tree is doing what? It's just leaching precious nutrients from the soil, but it's not yielding any figs. So it has become nothing more than an overgrown weed, really. Taking sunlight, taking nutrition, it's no good. Cut it down. Now when the Jews would hear the phrase, cutting down a tree, it would jog in their mind immediately a symbol of judgment. We might use in our culture the symbol of fire falling from heaven. But when you talked about cutting down a tree in figurative usage, it is a reference to the judgment of God. You might remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 and how the picture in his dream was that his tree was cut down. It's a symbol of judgment. Earlier, Pastor Pratt read that passage that speaks of the axe being at the root of the tree. That was John's message to Israel. When a tree is cut down, it's a symbol of judgment. And so the owner says what is only obvious, cut the tree down. Let it go. It's no good. Verse 8, Sir, the caretaker replies, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. By loosening the compacted soil around the roots of the tree, the caretaker will encourage moisture and fertilizer to get down to the roots. Maybe this tree just needs to be nurtured a little further. Let's give it one more chance. The window of opportunity is about to close. An immediate response is crucial. The tree will go down next year if the owner agrees. But you'll notice there's nothing even said but the caretaker continues in verse 9, If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Give it one more chance. Now, are the prospects good? Clearly not. If a tree is supposed to bear fruit and three years in a row it has not borne fruit, the chances that it will seem fairly slim. But let's give it one more opportunity. What is Jesus saying? I think in context we can see fairly clearly as verse 56 said, the Israelites are not discerning the times. They are not seeing that the Messianic age has dawned, that Christ as the King of Israel is in their midst. They are not seeing that. They are not embracing Him as the King. Time is limited. The patience of God will run out. As he said, as Jesus said back in verses 4 and 5, you should fear the one who can throw you into hell. Your tree, Israel, is not bearing fruit. God's judgment will fall. You don't know when, but you should respond. It's time for Israel to bear fruits of repentance. 
It is time, says Jesus, to seek the Lord while he may be found. It is time to call upon him while he is near, for the wicked to forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and to return to the Lord, that he would have mercy on him and to our God, that he would abundantly pardon. That's the time, says Jesus to Israel. How will Israel respond? Will the tree be cut down, or will it bear fruit of righteousness? The remainder of the book tells the story. We know that story, and so I do not take away anything to invite you to verse 34 of the same chapter and to know where this is headed. As the response of Israel is tested, we see Jesus weeping over the city. As he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather you, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. So Jesus teaches us here in this passage, first of all, that death is not an extraordinary tragedy. The wages of sin is death. We are all sinners. Death is ordinary. How people die differs widely. And some deaths grab our attention more than others, but death is ordinary. Everyone dies. Isn't it a wonder how we treat death as so extraordinary? It seems so unique in our experience, but it's not unique at all. Death is no more unique in the human experience than the rising and the setting of the sun. Everyone who is born dies. It's not extraordinary. What is an extraordinary tragedy is when God patiently waits for sinners to repent, to bear spiritual fruit, so that their death is not a perishing like the unbeliever. But when that is rejected, that is the extraordinary tragedy. When the patience of God is ignored and people continue in their sin. And I wonder if I speak with someone today who realizes in your own heart that God is permitting someone to dig around the roots of your soul. There's someone, it may be a parent it may be a teacher, it may be a friend, it may be a pastor, it may be someone in your life, even someone you don't know that you hear through the media or something. Somebody's digging around the roots of your tree. And you know that God through them is calling you to change. He's calling you to repent. He's calling you to turn from your sin. Understood, I think rightly, he is calling you to take that hand of Jesus as he stands over the pit of quicksand and to leave your sin and your selfishness and pride and to receive his free gift of salvation. Somebody is digging around the roots of your soul and you know you need to turn to him. Here's what you need to do to take the hand of Christ. To put it simply, that's a figure. The literal truth of the matter is that you need to understand that Jesus Christ 
took your sin in his body and he died in your place to pay the penalty, which is death. And he not only paid that penalty in theory, he rose from the death, from the dead to show his victory over death. That is the gospel that you must, the good news that you must receive in faith. And I would call you to turn to Christ, to put your hand in His. He'll pull you out. You don't need to clean yourself up, but you need to realize, I'm dying in my sin. And dying in my sin, I embrace the salvation that Jesus Christ alone provides. There's all kinds of gurus and teachers and religious leaders that will help you become a better person. Many of them. But there is no one who will deliver you from your sin and its consequences, which is death, which he defeated by his resurrection. No one else will do that. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Come to Christ today. The opportunity may be shorter. It may be shorter than you know. For those of us who have taken his hand, those of us who have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to acknowledge that repentance is a way of life. There is a way in which, as Paul does in his preaching in Acts chapter 26, for instance, that we can speak of repentance as conversion. I believe that he does that there. Repentance is another word for that, but repentance is more than that. Repentance is a way of life. We, in our all-night prayer meeting this early Saturday morning, we spent time in private prayer as we began, but then in that rough hour between 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning, we have a section of prayers that we, recall, that we call renewal and revival. And it just struck me as we were praying together that those that were here at that hour praying that God would renew us, that He would revive our church, laying before Him our sins as a church and asking His forgiveness. It struck me that those that are here, were here have been, are saved. And most of them have been saved for a lengthy period of time. But here we are for an hour in the middle of the night pleading with God for forgiveness and cleansing. I don't think that's bad theology. I think repentance should be a way of life. Now obviously there are those who would criticize and say that this can become twisted, and in fact it can where all we do is look at ourselves in negative light and can never do anything right, and we just beat ourselves up, pretty soon the next thing you get is, a, is the shirt off your back and, and one of those switches, and you beat yourself, as they do in many rituals throughout the world. No, that's not repentance either. But repentance is an acknowledgement before God that I am a sinner and that I must continually be turning from sin. That should be a way of life for us. 
a purification of life. Repentance then can refer to conversion. It does in the New Testament. Repentance can refer, I believe, to sanctification. And I think there is a crossover there in theme in the New Testament. It's a way of life. And what is the goal? The goal of repentance as we gather to pray for renewal, as we gather for asking the forgiveness of God, as you in your individual life come before the Lord and confess your sins and turn from your unrighteousness, the goal is that you not perish. The goal is that you not perish like the unrepentant and that you bring forth the fruits of repentance. Christian, I wonder if God is permitting one or more of his servants to dig around the roots of your soul in the hopes that you will bring forth greater fruits of repentance. That the fruit of the Spirit, as the New Testament unfolds and develops and fills up the theme, that the fruit of the Spirit would flow from your life. God is at work to do that in your life. There are people that are there. It might be, again, a parent. It might be a friend. It might be a teacher. It might be a pastor. Someone that you're hearing who's teaching the Word of God. But there's someone who is putting the pressure on in some respect and saying, you need to turn from your sin, from that sin. You need to seek purification of life and pursue sanctification. Is that going on in your life? Is the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin? A sin that you're harboring. Is Jesus, to put it in terms of sanctification, holding out his hand and saying, I want to rescue you from the quicksand of this wrongdoing? You need to take his hand and get out of the quicksand. He'll pull you out. He'll bring you forward. He'll sever the roots of sin in his own time, in his own way. But you've got to turn your back on your sin. I call on you. You know who you are and you know what is going on. I don't know anything as I speak here right now. But you know what God is talking to you about. You know where you need to turn. You know what the sin is. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Grasp his hand. It's time to repent. It's time to start producing the fruits of righteousness that God wants you to produce. Are you ready if he calls you home? If you're not, what in the world are you waiting for? Take that sin that's holding you back and let's stand it up here right in front of everybody and put it on display. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? If it causes you fear to think of other people knowing what's holding you back and knowing what your sin is, why would you want to go into eternity and meet God with that hung around your neck? It's time to turn today. You have nothing to lose. But what you will gain is a right standing before God. A standing, of course, that theologically He alone provides. 
but a standing of righteous reward before him will be worth every effort. What is it? Turn your back and follow him. You have nothing to lose. You have eternity to gain. I'd like us to sing in response before we have a word of prayer. Just now, while you remain seated, that last song that we sung, to the Lord save me with trembling heart and full disgrace. With tears of guilt I cry. Maybe we could just bow our heads as we sing this song in response to the Lord. It's the last song on your hymn sheet.